0: Lord, thank you that you are a mighty Savior, that you, Lord, have given us hope through the death of Christ and the salvation he offers, the forgiveness he offers. I do want to pray, Lord, for David, for the passing of his mom, and just ask, Lord, you would comfort him, his heart, and also, Lord, use this time as uh, an opportunity to uh, show your goodness, Lord, to the rest of the family, and I pray you would... Lord, just be an encouragement. And Father, too, we would ask that you would bless your word now and the time that we spend in it. Lord, thank you for Jonah, for this account that you have given to us and all the things that we can learn from it and all that it shows us about you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know... I don't know if any of you uh, heard about uh, Brock and I took an ice fishing trip uh, this last winter. Did not you hear about that? You know, we've Brock and I kind of have this school rivalry thing going on. And we thought, you know, it would be a good opportunity for us to uh, just spend some time together. Do something neither of us have ever done before. So we thought we'd go ice fishing. So we read up on it. We talked to a few fishermen here about it and get some advice and some information. And so we got the gear that we needed to do this, and, and we went out made our way onto the ice and uh, we set everything up because, you know, there's a specific way you got you to gotta do this. And, and we started to make the cut into the ice, you know, to cut the hole there to, uh, to do the fishing. But the moment that we started making the cut, there was this booming voice that rang out from above and it said, there are no fish under this ice. <laughs> and we didn't laugh. We were shocked. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We looked at each other. I mean, it startled us. You can imagine. And we just kind of sat there a minute, frozen. Get it? On the ice Anyway, so Brock and I looked at each other. A few minutes, we didn't hear anything else. We thought, okay, well, let's try again. And so we tried uh, to cut into the ice again. And again, the moment that we did that, this thundering voice rang out from above us. There are no fish under this ice. Well, at that point, I, Brock won't admit it, but I think I heard him cry out for his mommy at that point. But we were both pretty shaken up. We looked at each other again. We looked around. We looked up. I mean, we were puzzled, but nothing but silence. Well, we waited, we prayed a little bit uh, together, and finally we, we agreed we'd try one more time. So we moved to another spot in the ice, far from where we had originally tried, and we began to do our third attempt to cut a hole in the ice at that location. And again, the moment we started, we heard this voice even louder now, saying, there are no fish under this ice. At that moment, Brock got up the courage. He looked up and asked, is that you, Lord? And we heard this reply, no, this is Pickwick's ice rink manager. (laughs) We couldn't afford to take a trip away, so it was the closest place we could think of with ice. All right, I made it up. It's a good fish story, though, right? I thought in keeping with the most famous story involving a fish, which, by the way, the story of Jonah is a true one. This one was a little bit of slight fabrication. Um... But you know, that that's what really comes to mind when we think about Jonah. Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the great fish. And it's interesting to think about and realize as we go through the book of Jonah that that event wasn't actually the most significant or startling one, as unique and amazing as it was. Today we're going to see from Jonah chapter 3 an even more shocking event that took place in Jonah's life. That is our text this morning, Jonah 3, so if you could be uh, turning there. If you remember last week, we looked at the first couple of chapters and we saw how God had told Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh and to cry against it for the wickedness of that city had come before God. And so Jonah did arise all right, but he had other ideas, didn't he? He took off in the other direction for Timbuktu, or actually it was Tarshish, and he ran there, went to a ship, got on a ship from Joppa, sailed out, and what happened? text says God hurled a storm upon Jonah's ship. And so the sailors came to find out that Jonah was the reason for the storm. And it wasn't long after that that Jonah found himself sinking to the depths of the ocean. But instead of drowning, what happened? You all know this. God sent the great fish and he found himself in the gullet of this fish. And again, some just cannot swallow this story as true. And no, I'm not going to apologize for the pun. I think it's a good one. But, but I didn't mention these things last week. You know, one commentator I was reading said <clears throat> that the, uh, actually what happened was Jonah was rescued by another ship, which was called the fish. And true, I read this. And that he stayed below decks for three days recuperating from... Another commentator actually came up with this theory that Jonah did wash up on the shore and that he stayed in a place called the fish inn. I kid you not. But you know, I'm going with Jesus on this one, who affirmed that there was such a man as Jonah and that he did uh, exist and survive in the belly of a sea monster for three days, three nights. We read about that in Matthew 12, that this miracle was the real deal. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I've sat and thought about that. What would that have been like, being Jonah inside that fish? I mean, just imagine. Well, after three days of that, Jonah... Uh, finally expresses, we read about it in Jonah 2 last week, where he expresses this wonderful psalm of praise to God. And he ends with the words that are really uh, the theme of the book of Jonah when he says salvation is from the Lord. And it was at that point that the fish coughed Jonah up or vomited him up onto the shore. And it was it was a big fish that Jonah was inside, but it wasn't big enough to vomit him all the way to Nineveh. So he still had a trip ahead of him that he had to take. And we read about what happened as soon as he was uh, thrust upon the beach in Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Let's pick up the account there. Jonah 3, 1 says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Let's stop there a minute. We see here that God gives a command that should sound very familiar at this point, right? Because back at the very beginning of this account, he gave the same command to Jonah. Jonah, I want you to get up and go. Go to Nineveh. Now, picture Jonah at that moment, getting up, uh, up, uh, laying in the sand there. He's uh, sitting up. He hears God speaking to him again. He had just come through this storm. He thought he was going to drown. He was swallowed by a fish. He was in there for three days, probably as white as a sheet from laying in the stomach acid, not smelling too good, very hungry and thirsty. Uh, scraps of seaweed and decomposed, decomposed sea life were stuck to him. And then God says, okay, Jonah, you ready to go now? It's a no-brainer, right? Jonah grows up, and this time, rather than fleeing, he did what God had called him to do. Verse three says that adds this that he uh, went according to the word of the Lord, which I think is the author's way of saying, you know what he he uh, the author's making a point that this time Jonah obeyed and did what God told him to do. And now Nineveh, as I mentioned last week, it's not in Israel, right? It's not in Judah. Where is it located? Assyria, right? The uh, pagan empire of Assyria. Um, I showed this slide last week. But again, just to give us a a reminder, here's Israel. It's about 550 plus miles to Nineveh in the heart of Assyria. Now, before, when God called him the first time, it was less than 500 miles. But see, now he's got a little extra journey because he took off in the opposite direction, went down to Joppa. Probably would take him about a month or so on a typical caravan to get to Nineveh from there. But what's interesting is Assyria being outside of Israel as a pagan Gentile nation means that Jonah was the only Old Testament prophet that was sent by God to a nation outside of Israel to deliver a message of judgment. It's a very unique situation that we have here. Now, since the mid-1800s, there have been several archaeological digs around the location and area of Nineveh, and they've actually discovered ancient Nineveh. In fact, I found a, a layout that was uh, from an archaeologist around the mid-60s who laid out what they uh, see to be the area of Nineveh. Uh, this is a large wall. It's about seven and a half miles or so around. Uh, they found these walls, sections of these walls that were over 50 feet high and 50 feet wide. They found a palace to King Sennacherib that was located there. They've discovered several sections of the walls. They found several uh, channels and canals that went into the city. Oh, by the way, this is the Tigris River that was flowing alongside of it. And then there was another river that went inside through town. So they had plenty of water and resources. And what's interesting too is that uh, the first structure discovered here was the palace to King Sennacherib. But there were also two large mounds. If you were to go there today, these would be the prominent features on the site. And one of the mounds, I can't pronounce the one up here, but this one, very interesting. I think I mentioned it to you last week. It is a They found a transcription over uh, in the area of that mound that was called the, uh, the Nabi Yanu, which means the prophet Jonah. Now, this Nineveh here that we see isn't the same size that it was in Jonah's day. Actually, this uh, area of Nineveh or this layout is uh, one that was built about 70 years after Jonah's day uh, by King Sennacherib. He made Nineveh the capital of Assyria and he expanded the city. Uh, to a much larger area, probably about five times that of in Jonah's day. And in fact, what I did was just to give you a comparison. I'm not saying that Nineveh in Jonah's day was this circle here, but that's about the area that it was in the time of Jonah. Uh, King Sennacherib, when he rebuilt the city and expanded it, he noted the size of the city originally uh, that he expanded from. And in Jonah 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, it says, How many people populated this city? should know this number. In fact, it'll be the title of next week's message. 120,000, more than 120,000 that occupied uh, this very city. So imagine 120,000 people in a space that measures about three miles around. That'd be equivalent to if we took, you know, Burbank's population is pretty close to 120,000. If we took everyone in Burbank and stuck them in an area from here uh, west of Buena Vista and north to Clark Avenue. would be a little bit cramped if we did that. That was uh, the area of the city of Nineveh, roughly, during Jonah's day. And I bring that up to say that I think when we see the term here, the great city of Nineveh, that uh, the author's not just talking about uh, this area of Nineveh proper, but also the surrounding regions of Nineveh in Jonah's day. Just like we might call greater Los Angeles, includes not only the city of L.A., but also the surrounding environment. So to uh, Jonah, when he arrived upon Nineveh, he arrived at a place that had over 120,000 people. And it says that the area that he needed to cover would take at least three days to walk it. And as, Nineveh, or excuse me, as Jonah arrived at Nineveh, he then begins phase two of what God commanded him to do. And let, let's look at verse four where we see what happens next. It says there, Then Jonah, when he arrived upon the city, began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation and it said in Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. And when God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Now I know... Jonah 3 for many of us is just as familiar a circumstance and event as as Jonah's uh, stay inside the belly of a fish. But let's imagine again for a moment if we were to be hearing this story for the first time. Imagine if we were a Jew near Jonah's time hearing this story for the first time. The response that people had to Jonah's proclamation goes beyond incredible. If you look again at Verse 5 in that statement, they believed in God. That's an amazing thing because despite receiving a short, somewhat vague message from this reluctant prophet from a distant land, despite the fact that these Assyrians were idol-worshipping pagans who worshipped gods such as the goddess Nanshi and the, the fish god Dagon, and despite all of this, what was their immediate response to Jonah's proclamation? Let's say at the verse, beginning of verse 5. They believed in God. They believed in God. This is, I think, the greatest revival in history. An entire pagan city. It says from the least of them to the greatest of them, turns to God in a day. It's an amazing response. Simply amazing. And Jesus remarks about. The response of these Ninevites in Matthew 12. We looked at that passage briefly last week. I'd like you to turn over there again. Um, keep your finger in Jonah chapter 3, but look back or forward in Matthew 12 for a moment. Again, just by way of introduction, the Pharisees had accused Jesus of getting his power from Satan to do the works that he was doing, and then they demanded that Jesus show them a sign. A sign that would prove, that would validate his claims to be the Messiah. Then we read these words in Matthew twelve, thirty-eight. Some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, "As Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then Jesus adds this, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now we see here that Jesus not only affirms the miracle of Jonah in the fish and even the describes it as an allusion to a miracle taking place in his own life in the near future. But then he describes the men of Nineveh as those who would stand up with him at the judgment and they would condemn these Pharisees who had blasphemed and rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, even attributing his works to the works of Satan. And Jesus made that statement and could affirm that truth that the Ninevites would stand with him in that day. Why? How did they respond at the preaching of Jonah? They repented, right? Much different than the attitude of the Pharisees who were standing before Jesus when he spoke these words. And you know, it's here that Jesus characterizes their response. All that we read about concerning them in chapter 3, he characterizes as a true repentance. A repentance that led to their salvation. A couple of months ago we looked at the book of joel and we we talked about repentance there remember that passage where uh, god was speaking to them and he said rend your heart and not your garments return to me says the lord and that word turn is the idea of of repentance we talked about it then but that was by far was not an exhaustive look at this topic by any means And today we're going to uh, look to what the Ninevites have to teach us, for there's more that we can learn and be reminded of when we consider this important doctrine of repentance, because we cannot talk about repentance enough. It is vital not only to our salvation, but also to our sanctification. It is vital to our relationship with God. In fact, Christ and the apostles were very clear about that, and the, the role and the importance and the responsibility that repentance has. It's really a prerequisite for salvation, if you look at the, the teaching and the proclamations and the messages that were delivered by Jesus, by John the Baptist, by the apostles, in fact, Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Matthew were, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or in Luke 5.32, Jesus said one of the reasons that he came was to call sinners to Repentance. Mark 1.15, Jesus summarized the response to the gospel when he, when he said it says he came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a basic truth of the gospel that Christ has come and is, will reign. And then he says this, repent and believe in the gospel. Or John the Baptist declared in Matthew 3.2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or when Jesus sent out the disciples to bring the message of the gospel to those around, in Mark six twelve, it says they went out and they preached that men should repent. Or Peter, in Acts three nineteen, he said, "Repent and return. Repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away." Or Paul, when he's speaking to the Athenians, and he said that God, having looked over, looked at times of ignorance, is now declaring to men that all everywhere should should be able to fill in the blank by now should yeah. repent. Acts 6:26:20 20, Paul he summarized his message that he was bringing to those in Damascus and Judea to the Gentiles and he said that he told everyone he preached to that they were to repent and turn to God that's the overarching message that Paul said he proclaimed or Jesus one of his last exhortations in Luke 24 was that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations So we see here clearly, and I could read many more passages that describe and talk about and show the connection between uh, true repentance and salvation. And it's not only vital for salvation, it's also vital for sanctification. If you remember in Revelation chapter 2, when Jesus had given the Apostle John various letters that he was to take to the churches, anyone remember how many churches? Seven. Seven, I heard it, seven. Now of those seven churches, four of them, Jesus had confronted various sins that they were committing for churches, and he says, You need to repent. In fact, he told the church at Ephesus, who had lost their first love, he said, Their priority in following Christ, Revelation 2 5, he, he said, Remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds that you did at first. So, even to believers, there's a call for ongoing repentance and dealing with sin. In our life, So given the importance of repentance for our salvation, for our sanctification, it behooves us to take the opportunity here to see a situation which Christ described as true repentance and learn from it, be reminded of how the Ninevites responded and learn from their example. But just what is biblical repentance? We hear that word a lot. What does it mean? A Greek word that's often used and translated as repent is the verb metanoeo. It's a compound word. It's for two words that were brought together, meta meaning with or after, and noeo means to think or to perceive or understand. And so uh, brought together the, the ideas to think after, or uh, we might say to change one's mind. And so many have taken that as a strict definition, and they say that in regards to repentance, it refers solely to how one thinks, only to what one understands. In regards to the gospel, they say that it is to simply change your mind about Jesus. That's what repentance means, that it is to accept what the Bible says about him to be true, to change your opinion of him. In fact, one author in regards to the role of repentance and salvation said this. Is repentance a condition for receiving eternal life? Yes, if it is changing one's mind about Jesus Christ, No, if it means to be sorry for sin or even to resolve to turn from sin, for these things will not save. See, in his view, repentance is simply what you think about, how you consider or perceive who Jesus is and what he's done. And this author strongly rejected any, uh, you know, repentance in terms of anything you need to do because of his concern about there being a works attached to salvation. And I appreciate that that concern that he has but but does that mean there is only is only your thinking that he's talking about when we're talking about repentance if that's true then when jesus told the ephesians to repent was he simply saying you know you need to change your mind about how you're perceiving your my my me as your priority in your life was he simply telling them to go off and ponder and consider or to take action oh you got the answer well i guess we can stop right there uh Well, that brings us back to Matthew 12. That brings us back to the Ninevites and their example. For Jesus, thankfully, tells us what repentance means. He gives us a definition because he says, the Ninevites, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And so I don't know about you, but in looking at the example of the Ninevites, if Jesus says that's repentance, then that's what repentance is. And so who's us to, to look at? Uh, their example. And from their example in Jonah 3, we will see the fruit of genuine repentance. So let's go back to Jonah and read the rest of the account that took place there. Verse 4, Jonah had arrived. Again, a picture of him. He, he comes into after this month-long journey, or perhaps even longer if he went by foot, and he arrives at this place. He sees the city of Nineveh before him and its surrounding environment, and he goes into town, and he delivers the message that God gave him. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Or in some of your translations, it may say Nineveh will be destroyed. That word overthrown or destroyed, um, the tense of that verb and also the word that's added in, the, in here, yet, both indicate there's an immediacy here. That Jonah's saying, in 40 days, you're done. Basic meaning of that word overthrown is to be uh, overturned or to be changed the context of judgment it means to be destroyed like as spoken of a Sodom and Gomorrah same word was used in regarding them but it also can mean simply to just turn something around it was used at various times to describe that in the Old Testament there's a passage that talks about turning a plate over or another passage that talks about uh, turning a chariot and both of them use this same word overthrown so it can carry this idea of being changed of being uh, turned and I think given what we know about the story of Jonah that the author is actually using it, or that the message here is actually a a double meaning. That this word overthrown, Jonah had one idea in his mind, didn't he? Overthrown in the sense of destroyed. But God had another thing in mind, didn't he? Nineveh indeed would be overturned and changed, but not in a way that Jonah thought. In fact, one author said, Nineveh did not end up being overturned, but it did experience a turnaround. It appears Jonah may have only preached for one day, Notice that right after it says at the end of verse 3 that Jonah was a great city, a three days walk, the very next sentence says that uh, Jonah uh, went through, began to go through the city, one day's walk. So I think he went in for the first day, did his time, punched the clock, and he was done. God, I did what you told me to do. But you know what? That's all God needed. That's all he needed. For we see here that... People responded because, again, we know Jonah's attitude. We'll talk about that next week. He didn't really want this city to change. And also, too, the fact that in the rest of chapter 3, Jonah's not mentioned anymore. So I really think he did clock out at the end of that first day. But again, that's all God needed because it says in verse 5 that they believed in God. The Ninevites believed in God from the least of them to the greatest of them. That phrase, at least to the greatest, is a literary device. It's known as a merism. It's when you take parts of something to represent the whole. For example, we might use the phrase, he searched high and low. That doesn't mean he just looked up and looked down, right? What does it mean? He looked everywhere. Or that uh, idiom we have, the lock, stock, and barrel. It's not just talking about those specific parts, but it's speaking of everything, right? So here when... Uh, When it says, from the least of them to the greatest of them, it's talking about everybody, right? No matter the age, no matter the gender, no matter the social status, everyone responded. So think about this. It says that the, the people of Nineveh believed in God, from the least of them to the greatest of them, everyone, everybody, everybody responded. Stop there a minute and think about this. That simple statement, do you realize what it's saying? Jonah went into this pagan city, gave this message, and there was a revival, a revival of epic proportions. In fact, John MacArthur says this is one of the most understated verses in all of Scripture. And I'd agree with him because tens of thousands of people turned to God in faith. And this response shows us the first characteristic of genuine repentance is to trust in God, to believe in God. For that phrase, believe in God, just, just, does, does not just mean to believe in what he said. It carries this idea of trusting in, of hoping in, of putting your faith in. Psalm 78, verse 22 says of the Israelites that they did not do this. They did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Jeremiah 15, 6 says that Abraham believed in Yahweh and God credited it to him or reckoned it to him as righteousness. Genuine repentance goes hand in hand with faith, with trust, with belief in God. And notice again, it says the Ninevites believed in God. It's like John 3, 16 says that whoever believes in Jesus would have eternal life. It's not just to believe again, but to believe in There is a difference. This isn't a mere acceptance of facts or information that to be true. Right? We know from James that the demons have that kind of belief. They have very solid doctrine about God and about Jesus. They believe that he exists. They believe Jesus is the son of God. They believe Jesus became a man. They believe that Jesus died on a cross and that he rose again in three days. They know that's true. They saw it. They believe it. But the problem is they don't believe in. That's why James says they believe and tremble because they don't believe in Jesus. They don't have a relationship with him. They don't trust him. They don't follow him. Again, we're seeing here this is not informational, but relational. That doesn't mean it's devoid of information. We have to believe the right things. There has to be the right understanding and right knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done but it's more than just accepting the facts. The Ninevites believed in God. They made a conscious decision to turn to Him in faith and to no longer rely on themselves or continue in their own ways. And we see from them that trust is the first characteristic in genuine repentance. And by first there, I don't mean that it has to be the first one in terms of the order, but I'm just saying first in terms of the order given here in the text. For repentance incorporates, it's a packaged Deal, genuine repentance of the kind that Jesus is referring to here includes all the qualities that we're going to see here in Jonah 3 from the Ninevites. In fact, the next characteristic is seen in verse 5, when the people, they call for a fast and they put on sackcloth. We've seen that before. Joel talked about that a lot. Remember, sackcloth was that kind of coarse clothing of of goat's hair that you would put on to demonstrate a great sorrow or mourning or in despair you would take off your, your normal garments and put this very rough and, and ugly, very unappealing clothing upon yourself, not to draw attention to yourself, but to demonstrate that, that the comforts of life are not even worth having at that point because of the great sorrow and mourning that you are going through. In fact, Psalm 30, verse 11 contrasts uh, the idea of wearing the sackcloth with the attitude of joy, where it says there, you've turned for me my mourning into dancing, you've loosed my sackcloth. And girded me with gladness. That's just simply telling us that wearing sackcloth meant you had a big sign on your head, and in fact, your face probably showed it sorrow, grief, despair, no joy. It says here that the Ninevites also fasted. That was another sign of mourning or of experiencing great emotional distress, or when uh, you were preparing yourself to make an earnest request from God. It's this idea of having a sincerity, a resolve, that when you fast, you recognize that, that this situation that you're in, the gravity of it is more important than even eating. It's more important than food. What is it that these Ninevites are experiencing here? What is it that they're responding to? You see, they realize that they're struck here with the consequences of the reality of the consequences of their sin They were in mourning as if they were in some great national tragedy, which, in fact, they were. In fact, they they were made aware of their sin against God and His judgment for it. And by their actions, by this uh, fasting and putting on of sackcloth, we see another attribute here of genuine repentance is sorrow. Sorrow for sin. Grief over sin. Again, remember back in Joel, we saw several times the prophet exhorting the people to, to put on sackcloth, to to fast, to cry out in grief. Again, not because of the plague that had come upon them, but because of what brought the plague about. And that was their sin against God. Again, a true work of repentance, as we see God doing within the people here in Nineveh, will be shown by the shame and the guilt and the sorrow that is experienced. Because when we have wronged God, we should mourn that, should we not? Should we not mourn our sin? And yet how easy it is, I think, for us at times to take God's grace flippantly. Jeff mentioned earlier the little sins. You know, if we don't experience an immediate consequence for something we have done wrong, sometimes we can misinterpret that or mistake that to mean it's no big deal. That it doesn't really matter. But maybe we learn from these Ninevites who were so sensitive to their sin and the response that they gave of humility and sorrow and again not only do the people respond that way but look at verse six notice how the king responds apparently he didn't hear the message from jonah firsthand but it was brought to him it was delivered to him and what does he do immediately upon hearing this message of judgment um how my advisors go hey, we'll have a council meeting and consider that for next month and what we need to do about it what does he do He immediately gets up off his throne. He takes off the garments of honor and splendor and royalty and authority, and he puts on those same dirty, rough clothes that the people were now wearing. The king, as well, identified himself with the sin that they had committed. Think about that for a moment. This is a king, a ruler in Assyria. These folks were not known for humility. These folks were not known for uh, demonstrating this kind of response. They were the chiefs on the hill, basically, in this region. And notice, too, what the king did. Not only did he put on the garments of shame and mourning, what else did he do? What else does the text say? He went out and sat on a pile of ashes, or uh, that word could possibly uh, be translated as a, a refuse heap. The king puts on the sackcloth, and he goes out and sits at the local garbage dump. Why did he do that? Remember, Job did that after he experienced the great tragedies in his life. That's an expression of deep shame and grief that things are so bad, I'm just going to go sit out here on a pile of garbage and mourn for what has happened. This is significant. In every way possible, the king and the people are expressing this genuine sorrow for sin. And another attribute we see here of genuine repentance, I mentioned it a second ago, is humility. Not only is there trust in God that's exhibited, not only is there sorrow for sin that takes place, but also this genuine deep humility. Verses 7 and 8, the king issues a proclamation. And what does he tell all the people of Nineveh? A large group had already started this movement. The king hears about it. And now he says, all right, I'm going to issue a proclamation. Probably in cuneiform." form, John David. You probably could read it. Um, And he issues this proclamation. And what does he tell the people of Nineveh? Everybody needs to not taste a thing, not drink a thing. Everybody needs to be wearing sackcloth. Kind of like those Awana days where everyone has to, you know, do the same crazy hair day or whatever. The king issued a proclamation. This is sackcloth day. And this wasn't a time of celebration, but a time of mourning. And he says, not only are the people to also adorn, not only people to adorn this type of uh, summer wear, but who else was to be clothed and to be in mourning? The animals even. The animals. The whole city. If you were to look at and the king says, I want everybody to demonstrate and display this mourning and this humility because of the sin that we've committed against God. Now, think about All the prophets and all the times they went to the Israelites. did we ever see a response like this from God's people in the Old Testament? Or even the animals? Because if they weren't eating, if they weren't drinking anything, they're going to be crying out too, right? For hunger? The king wanted the whole city, every living creature, to respond that way. We see another merism here where he says man and beast. He's saying every living creature in Nineveh needs to display and demonstrate this heart of humility sorrow. This is astounding. Now some people look at this and you know scholars and they say well you know. This is just an overreaction by a primitive people. Idol worshiping people who are scared that some irate deity is mad at him. And he's going to whack him because he's not happy. But there's something interesting in their response. I might agree with that if these people went out and started gathering sacrifices. Like they would normally do with any mad god. But they don't offer any sacrifices, do they? You don't see them building altars, coming up with some gift in order to bribe God. This goes beyond some external uh, show of hypocritical worship. They were struck in the heart. They were struck in the heart. They recognized that they were sinners before God, that they had committed evil, wickedness, in fact look at the end of verse 8 where it says that everyone should turn from their wicked ways that's exactly what god's assessment was of this people back in jonah 1 verse 2 when he said that the that their wickedness has risen up before him the king admits and recognizes their sinners he uses the word their violence in their hands that word violence is a strong word it means a physical brutality oppression strife cruelty against other human beings as I read from you uh, last week to you from an account from one of the Syrian kings, they were a brutal people. They had a reputation for cruelty. In fact, uh, they used a method of torture and death that was a precursor to Roman crucifixion. So we see here the Ninevites, they weren't performing some superficial acts of penance while doing nothing about the sin that brought them to this place. They were fully aware, and we see that especially in the king's proclamation. We've got a problem here, and this isn't a problem we can just go and throw food at to some deity. We have sinned against God, God of heaven and earth. There's no hypocrisy here, no outward religion. There's simple, genuine humility and a complete acceptance of wrong done. No excuses being offered. No, um, you know, no a rejection of what they've been done. They knew they'd done wrong. And another thing too, we see humility here in the fact that um, apparently in, in, all, in the Assyrian annals and all the documents that we have there, this whole idea of an Assyrian fasting and putting on sackcloth was unique. It wasn't done by these people. That was something those weird Israelites would do. Not something for For us. This was primarily an Israelite expression of mourning. I find this fascinating that the Gentiles, these pagan Gentiles, adopted a practice of those who were to them an inferior people because they had been genuinely humbled here. They displayed what God desired to see from his own people. Remember, over and over in Joel, he said, return to me, put on sackcloth and ashes, consecrate a fast. And yet they didn't do it, but these pagan Ninevites did. They were humbled. Joel 2.12 says, God speaking to his people said, Yet even now return to me with all your heart and with fasting, weeping and mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. That's what the Ninevites did. They followed exactly what David had said in Psalm 51. They didn't even know this Psalm most likely where it says that God a broken and contrite heart God will not despise. They show us that true repentance means contrition, humility, a heart broken over sin, accepting responsibility for that sin, seeing it as evil, begging God for mercy. And that's the next thing that the king does in his proclamation. And he says, call out earnestly to God. And I find this ironic. Who are the two people that are telling those who don't believe in God to call out to God in the story of Jonah? Remember chapter one? who was it that was going around the ship telling the sailors, call out to God. And he went to Jonah and said, call on your God. The ship's captain. And here in Jonah 3, it is the king of Nineveh telling the people to call out to God earnestly. I find this very ironic that the one guy who should be doing that, the prophet Jonah was not. It was these two pagan leaders. They understood. They understood. Cry out to God. Maybe he will hear it's interesting to see the humble sincerity of the king in verse 9 when he says, who knows? God may turn and relent, withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. You see what he, he's saying here and showing us is the repentance here that we see came without certainty of deliverance. He wasn't sure. Who knows? God may change his mind. He's given us 40 days. Maybe, maybe he'll turn from his decision of judgment. But in any case, people, we need to turn. We need to turn from our evil ways. This, this, this story, brothers and sisters, is is something that has been passed on to us not as it's just some remarkable event in history, not as some uh, you know piece of literary work that is well written and interesting and has all these things. It's not given to us solely for those purposes. It's given to us so that we would learn from the example of these people and how to deal with our own sin and how to call others to repentance. Let us be reminded of who our sins are against, whom they are against. Let us remember how our sin harms others. And most importantly, let us remember what the cost was required to pay for that sin. One of the songs we sung earlier today talked about uh, the blood on our hands in reference to Christ. And his blood is what it cost, crucifixion, to pay for sin. And these are the truths as we remember them from the example of the Ninevites. And as we meditate on them, these are the things that will bring within us a humble heart in regards to our sin. And that contrite heart, that humble heart, will then produce another characteristic of genuine repentance that we see in the last three verses of chapter 3. Look again there. I want to read them again. In the middle of the king's proclamation, he says, But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call earnestly on God, and that each may turn. From his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger. So that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds. That they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity. Which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he didn't do it. We see here in these three verses really the. The focus of the entire chapter. This really is the message from Jonah 3. This is the thing Jesus was referring to when he said the people at Nineveh responded in repentance at the preaching of Jonah. Notice what's repeated here in these three verses. This word turn. Verse 8, that each may turn from his wicked way, that he may turn from the violence in his hand. Verse 10, when God saw that they what? Turned from their wicked way. It shows us here that genuine repentance is not just having sorrow for sin. It is not just trusting in God. It is not just changing your mind about sin. It is not just expressing humility. It is also turning from it. Again, that Hebrew word shuv that we saw back in Joel, where uh, it means a physical turning when we're speaking a literal um, application of it. But in the moral realm... Carries the idea of changing your direction morally. Going in the opposite direction. Much like Jonah did the first time. He turned the wrong way. Here this idea of Shuv is to turn from a sinful path onto a righteous one. And that's what got God's attention. Notice what it says there. He saw their what? Verse 10. He saw their what? Their deeds. That they what? Turned from their wicked way. And that's when God relented. The final piece of the genuine repentance puzzle had been put in place. God saw the condition of their hearts. God saw their response, their trust in Him. And God saw their deeds. That they turned from their ways of sin. Brothers and sisters, this is the acid test of true repentance. This will tell you if it's real or not. This is a demonstration of a truly contrite and rended heart, because what a person does indicates what that person is. What did Jesus say about about the deeds in the heart in Mark 7? Remember we said, out of the, the heart flows, and then he listed a number of deeds, in that case sinful ones. It's one thing to feel bad about sin, but it's quite another to take action to turn from it. And so when we consider that Greek word metanoeo, it's They weren't just speaking of the Greek idea of changing your mind, but it also included the Hebrew idea of changing your ways. So when Jesus used the term repentance, he was using it in the way of to change your mind that leads to a change in action. That's how Jesus understood it. He saw from these Ninevites, they did not simply change their understanding about sin. They did not simply change their understanding about what God thinks about it. He saw they changed their direction. They bore actual fruit. They turned from their sin. Remember what I quoted earlier from Paul in Acts 26:20 20, when he summarized the message of his ministry that everyone should repent and turn to God, and then he said this, listen, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That word appropriate there is this word, oxios. It's this idea of balancing a scale. Meaning, carries the idea meaning of those deeds that are consistent with, worthy of, equal to repentance, true repentance. We see the same thing from John the Baptist. Jeff read from it in Luke chapter 3. Which talked about John's ministry. It summarized it in verse 3 when he said he came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Same word there, metanoia. But don't miss it there. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then in verse 8, John goes on to define what that repentance looked like when he said, therefore, bear fruit in keeping with, same word Paul used, consistent with, worthy of, equal to repentance. The people of that day when they were there listening to John, and they said, well, what does that mean, John? What does that look like? How do I do that? And he addressed three different groups of people. And what did he tell them? Well, go off and just think about it. No, he gave them specific actions to too, didn't he? He told the task gatherers, don't gather more than what you're required to He told everyone to share, have an attitude, a spirit of generosity. Share if you have extra clothing. If you have two, give someone else one of them. If you have food, give it to somebody who has need. And then he told the Roman soldiers as well, don't be cruel and harsh. He gave them specific deeds, specific ways they could demonstrate fruit consistent with repentance. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Ultimately, what, what is God after then? What is this idea of biblical repentance Sorrow? Yes. Guilt? Yes. A a desire to change? Yes. A recognition of wrongdoing? Yes. But it is still not true repentance if there's no change in behavior. Thomas Watson summarized in his excellent book, highly recommend, The Doctrine of Repentance. He summarized true repentance as seeing sin, having the sorrow for it, to confess it, to be ashamed of it, to hate it, and to turn from it. Listen, rightly understanding what repentance really is is the difference between heaven and hell. It's the difference between eternal life and eternal death. I'm willing to bet there are some here that are in a place where I found myself before God saved me. I know I've shared my testimony with you a few times, but I grew up with a knowledge of Christ. I grew up hearing all these things. I believed Jesus was God. I believed he became a man. I affirmed that he died on the cross for sin. He even would tell people he died on the cross for my sin. And that he rose again on the third day. I even believed he was coming back. And that I would be part of those who he would take with him. To be with him in heaven. But you see, I had a change of mind. But I wasn't saved. I did not have a relationship with him. I went to church. I was the good kid. But I was still... An immoral, foul-mouthed drunkard. And that became very evident when I got to college. I didn't perform deeds consistent with true repentance. I didn't bear fruit that matched a changed heart because I was deceived. I was deceived. I rested on the false hope of mere religion to save me. I, I hoped that the acknowledgement of certain facts about Jesus... Important facts, orthodox facts, facts that if you reject, you cannot be saved. But I rested on just knowing those things, that 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 is what would save me. I could live life however I wanted, as long as I believed the right things. I hoped in a change of mind about Jesus to give me eternal life. And here's the important distinction. I called Jesus Lord, but I didn't follow him as Lord. There's a difference. Then God showed me one day, summer of 1986, First 1 John 2, where he said, The one who says, I've come to know him, the one who says, I've come to know him, hey, that's me! The one who says, I've come to know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. Ooh! That one hit like a brick, and the truth is not in him. Another brick. He said that he's a liar because there's no repentance. There's no transformed heart that would be evident in a transformed life. And I ask you, friend, what about you? What kind of savior do you have? Jesus said these words in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But whom? He who does the will of my father will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, calling him Lord, just like Tim did. Did we not prophesy in your name and your name cast out demons and your name perform any miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Get out of here, you who practice lawlessness. You don't want to be in that conversation. But I fear maybe some here will be. You think, you know, a right knowledge of Christ is enough. That I believe the right things. But listen, true salvation like that experienced by the Ninevites comes with a genuine repentance that is a sorrow for sin, a trust in God, a humility, and the desire and conviction to turn from it. You'll know it's genuine if you see turning from sin to obedience in your life, if you see a change of following self to following Christ. And again, that's not to say that this change happens on your own. Please don't misunderstand. This text isn't teaching that we just have to get right in our lives first and then we can go to God and ask for forgiveness. Does that work? Does that work? No. It's not get right first and then go to God. It is go to God with a desire and a conviction and a willingness and a desire to change and then he'll do the change for you. But you have to have the conviction. I'll do whatever it takes to turn from my sinful life. God help me. Just like the... King of Nineveh, earnestly, fervently cry out to God. Call out to him. A word used over and over in the book of Jonah. Call out to him earnestly. The implication that God may have mercy. So friend, I ask you to evaluate your life. Do you see change? Those of you who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ, are you different? Because if Christ is in your life, there will be change. Again, that's not to say that change means perfection. That's not to say that change means there'll be no temptation anymore. That's not to say that change means you'll never give in to that temptation. But you'll be on a different road. You'll be on a different path. Yes, you may experience flat tires and running out of gas sometimes and engine trouble, but you're on a different road. That's the idea as believers, we come to realize that repentance isn't a one-time act, but it it is a course of life. For until we're in glory, we'll not be completely rid of sin. That's why Thomas Watson said, dying to sin is the life of repentance. And even as believers, true repentance doesn't involve just confessing the sin. It doesn't involve just being sorry for it, just being humble before God for it. It also involves turning, taking steps to change by the grace of God. And I just take a moment, brothers and sisters, and evaluate your own lives. Do you see change in every area? Or are there some areas that aren't changing? Would you find yourself thinking, you know, things aren't changing in my marriage. Things aren't changing in how I treat my spouse, how I treat my children, how my children, how I treat my parents. I don't see myself growing in my struggle with lust or alcohol or, or anger or bitterness or, or gossip or hatred or impatience or harsh speech or love of money. I just don't really see change going happening there. If that's the case, then let me humbly submit to you that you're not repenting in those areas in your life. For genuine repentance will bring change. Again, maybe not total, completely done with it, but it will bring change. So if that's your situation, think about and consider this week the example of these Ninevites who with very little knowledge responded with a genuine repentance and faith in God. Consider how they trusted in him. Are you believing God in this area of struggle in your life? Are you admitting to and trust that, you know what, God, your way is the best way, that this really is sin, that I need to turn from it? Are you hoping in him to help you or are you trying to get through it on your own? Or just ignoring it and hoping it will go away? Do you have a genuine sorrow for that sin? Does it grieve you that that sin is against God? And the Ninevites' example of humility. How have you humbled yourself in this area? Do you truly have a contrite heart before God? Or is it just not that big a deal? And finally and most importantly, what steps have you taken to change? What steps have you truly taken to change? Or are you just waiting there so god's gonna deal with it he's the one that'll do it in my life so i'm just gonna wait here until it happens we call that here at calvary the holy zap is that what you're waiting for and remember you know what god god gave us grace to repent unto salvation and he gives grace to repent unto sanctification god will by his grace grant you freedom you can truly be done with that sin You can be done with it. Paul talked about praying for strength in the inner man through his spirit. But you must repent. May we believe in a gospel of true repentance. May we preach a gospel of true repentance. And may we live a gospel of true repentance. Let's go to him now in prayer. And what I'd like you to do is kind of follow up with what Jeff did earlier. And just give you a moment on your own to talk to the Lord. Some of you need to have a serious conversation with him. Maybe you've never truly recognized or realized turning from your sin and faith is what's needed to be saved. Again, you don't have to do that turning on your own. God will do it for you, but you must have a willingness and a desire. Or maybe there's an area in your life that the Holy Spirit is bringing some conviction on. I want you to just think about that and ask yourself the example of the Ninevites. Are you applying that to this specific issue in your life? What steps to change are you actually taking? I'll give you a minute and then I'll close this. You for Jonah, the book of Jonah. Just what an amazing testimony, Lord, of your kindness to bring this prophet to them and to bring them to salvation. We thank you for their example, genuine repentance. And Lord, I would pray that by your Spirit you would bring greater understanding of what that means in each of our lives, Lord, that for some needing to repent in faith in Christ to be saved, to recognize their need for salvation and to call Jesus Lord, as Romans 10 says, and to follow him as Lord, give up their lives. I pray, God, you would bring about a genuine repentance there. And Lord, for those of us who are your children, that or we all have sins in our lives, I have t- Sins, Lord, that I deal with, every one of us does. God, may you grant us a true repentance in each of these areas. Lord, that we would seek help from you, from fellow believers, Lord, in these struggles. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that you give to be able to address these issues in our lives, to turn from our sin. We thank you that you do that work in us. Lord, that you only ask for us to bring you a broken and contrite heart, willing to turn and doing, being willing to do whatever necessary to make that turn. I pray, God, that that would be what characterizes us. Lord, we know that you don't desire to crush and beat and devour us, but want us to reflect the beauty and image of your Son. Lord, we thank you for him, and in his name we pray. Amen.